It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I am sitting here with Sarah and Roxy, and I was very drawn to speaking with them because their work is around having anti-racist conversations and doing that from a place of authenticity and heart, which is what I aim to do with everything in life. And I know that I have a lot to learn about anti-racism, being anti-racist, being a better advocate, ally. And it feels challenging for me because there's a lot to learn. One thing that really spoke to me when I was reading about Sarah and Roxy's work was this phrase, the blindfold of privilege. I have recently been examining the privilege of ignorance, but the blindfold of privilege is another way of looking at it. And I wanted to begin with a little story that I'm curious to hear Sarah and Roxy's perspective on. Last summer, I was visiting my hometown and I was with a few friends. I grew up in a predominantly white town. And so anybody who wasn't white really stood out to me. But it's interesting as a child how someone stands out. Maybe you notice them. But I think as children, we might not notice our differences unless they're really explicitly pointed out. And I remember noticing the students of color and there was one in particular who became a friend of mine. And all these years later, I met up with him probably the first time in 10 years or saw this man. And we ended up having some conversations in which he was revealing his experience at our school in the small town. And I was absolutely shocked as an adult to hear some of the ways that he was treated. And I noticed how much of a blindfold I had as a white person in this predominantly white town because I didn't even realize what people of color were experiencing. And it was an interesting moment to recognize that through him sharing how teachers that I really loved and had great experiences with, he had really poor experiences with. He had experiences of feeling like he was being targeted and it was heartbreaking. So I noticed my ignorance there. I noticed my privilege in a new way there. And then I also noticed how I wasn't sure if my questions to him were perhaps inappropriate because I was became very curious. I wanted to know more about his, his experience. And now almost a year later, I'm wondering, was I inadvertently being microaggressive? Was I being racist by asking him questions? Was I bringing up old trauma for him? And I realized I don't fully know how to have an anti-racist conversation. So I thought that that would be a good place to begin with Sarah and Roxy here, since I'm so educated and dedicated to the subject matter. How do we begin to navigate through this type of ignorance? What a wonderful question. Roxy, are you willing to take the lead on this and then we'll come in with something else if I need to? Sure. I was really actually moved by hearing you ask and having curiosity about, were you actually doing more harm? by in some ways indulging your curiosity when he was sharing this to you. And I like using that word. It was indulging your curiosity, right? 
And that's one of the places where I always want people to start. Whenever we have these conversations, he had a purpose in sharing this with you. There was a need that he was trying to meet. And then I'm not sure what that need was. It might have been to finally be known for his experience, right? That it was no longer the secret or something that he had to hide about. It might have been for deeper authenticity with you. Like if I'm going to have a friend and we're going to be real friends, I want to be honest about my experiences that they have no clue about. And in that case, if those were his needs, then you asking questions might have given him in some ways permission to continue to share things. Perhaps he tried to share in the past and people were like, I don't want to hear that, or they were questioning him or challenging him. So I could imagine that might have been really supportive. But what I think you're probably picking up on is that sometimes when we're indulging our curiosity, it's not actually what they're wanting. Maybe what he was wanting was to hear not so much, not to answer your questions about your questions about his experience, but to actually hear your reaction, to hear your vulnerable expressions around how were you impacted hearing that? What is it like for you to know that we were walking in the same hallways and having such a vastly different experience? He might have been wanting your vulnerability, your mourning or your grief or your anger around what had happened that would let him know that he wasn't alone. And so one of the first invitations I have to people is when someone comes to you with information like this, check in about what would serve them. You know, like, yes, your curiosity is real and it's valid, but ask them, are you actually wanting me to ask more questions right now? Or what would be helpful? I can share what's coming up for me as I hear this, but what would actually serve you in this moment? That's really helpful framework and exactly the type of information I'm interested in learning because I don't want to do more harm, but I wonder if I inadvertently do. And I think that's part of the challenge of navigating racism as a person of privilege, as a white person. Those questions have come up a lot for me, especially with all the social justice movements that have happened in the last three years or so. Uh, recognizing the racism that I wasn't even aware of. And there are times where I thought, maybe I should just be quiet and not say anything. And that's almost a selfish move I started to feel because being quiet doesn't feel like you're actually being anti-racist. But I think it feels easier to be quiet because there's a fear of making it worse. There's a fear of saying the wrong thing. I didn't even really understand microaggression. So I would love to learn more from each of you about that because once I started learning a little bit about microaggressions, I thought, wow, I've probably said some things that have done more harm, even though I had no idea they were doing harm. So how do you know when something you're saying is a microaggression if it's not coming from that, right? Like that's why it feels tricky. Is it about the specific words you use? Is it about the timing? Is it about the context? How do you stay away from that? I think one of the first things before we go to the microaggressions is a really cool point from the book, The Anti-Racist Heart, which is the hard thing about anti-racist conversations and anti-racist action is that we don't want to do harm. But what we have to start to understand is that we live in a world where it's completely impossible not to do harm. So if we begin to accept that, then we can move into these conversations with the kind of curiosity that Roxy is inviting us to about like, oh, okay, here I am. What would serve you? How can I catch you the way you want to be caught in this conversation? Which in itself, that warm curiosity about the specifics of another person and what their needs are is an antidote to microaggressions. And knowing that we do harm 
which there's an entire chapter about (laughs) in The Anti-Racist Heart, allows us, once we start to let go of any agreements we have with ourselves, which are not doable, it's just not a doable possibility to live in this world and not do harm. Once we let go of that illusion, then we're like, okay, here I am. I'm doing harm, but I'm right here. (laughs) I'm going to bring my full self. So, And then that then opens the door to us checking in with Roxy, because Roxy does amazing work about microaggressions. Well, I want to riff off what you've just said, Sarah, because this idea that I'm not going to do harm is another way that I see white folks. I'm going to talk about racial microaggression since that's what the book is about, right? So this can happen to anybody in any of the dominant groups. But it's one of the ways that I see white folks not engaging in these conversations. And it's another form of privilege. It's like if I'm walking through the world and I'm experiencing harm all the time, I don't have a choice. It's like that harm is happening. And when someone says, I don't want to do harm, so I'm going to stay silent, what they're actually saying is, I'm going to protect how I'm seen. I'm going to protect how you're viewing me by staying silent because I'm scared that I'm going to say something and you're going to judge me. Well, I'm being judged all the time. So one of the ways you can show up is to take the risk. Just risk that you're going to say something. Maybe it will cause more harm. And the the way that you show up is decide, if I tell you that that didn't work and it caused more harm, to be open to that feedback. So it's not about not taking the risk. It's around what do I do when I find out that something I said or did might have caused more harm than I wanted. This is so helpful. (laughs) I'm very grateful to be learning from each of you on this because it is something I am eager to learn, but I feel like it's been a little hard to find. And, and again, maybe that's coming from a place of privilege. There are abundance of books about anti-racism and I'm trying my best to read them. And But there still feels like elements, maybe it's just a matter of time and experience and learning through the mistakes. And something related to what you just said, Roxy, that I'm, I'm curious featured your perspectives on this too, is there was another element to the conversation I was having with my Black classmate last year, which was that one of my white female friends was there. There was three of us. And she was visibly and verbally uncomfortable with my questions to him. And she kept stepping in and saying things, well, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. And I noticed that and I thought it was a little strange. It felt like she was setting boundaries for him that he wasn't setting for himself. And then after he left, it was just me and my white friend. And she said, I think that you were were asking, I don't know how she said it. Let's just say inappropriate questions. Not sure if those were her words, but she verbalized to me privately that she felt like I was talking about things that she didn't think were right or that might have been making him uncomfortable. And that was a hard thing to process because I then felt really unsure was the discomfort from her or was the discomfort from him? Because he didn't seem to be setting those boundaries or giving me the feedback like you're saying, Roxy. It was my white friend doing it. And so was that just her perspective or was she picking up on things that I wasn't noticing? Yeah. Maybe it was both. Exactly. This is one of the complexities of these kinds of conversations, right? That there's no way to actually know. It's completely possible that they have a relationship where she knows that he really doesn't want to have, in some ways, be grilled about these kinds of questions and that they might even have an agreement. I've made this agreement with some of my friends. If someone goes there, can you just step in? I don't want to do this labor anymore, but you step in and say, no, 
That's one of the great ways we can show up in support of someone. Or it could be that she was sitting with her discomfort. It's like, we're not supposed to talk about race in this country, and you're talking about race, and this feels uncomfortable. So the only way that you'll know is if you ask them, right? If you actually did the more uncomfortable thing and said, you know what, I want to pause and talk about a dynamic that I'm noticing right now. And I see that when I ask this question, you keep pausing and saying, you don't have to do this, you don't have to answer. And I'm wondering if there's an agreement y'all have, or if there's some body language I'm not picking up on, or my Black friend, would you rather I don't talk about this? Would you like me to drop this? What would be comfortable for you? And just check. And we often don't even check because doing that feels uncomfortable. We're now like really like opening Pandora's box. Uh, That is something helpful that I can take forward in the future because... I've been sitting with this experience that's almost a year old because I want to learn from it. And you can't go back and change the past. I think you can use this information and not have it centered around myself. I've almost wanted to reach out to my Black friend and apologize or check in. And I'm wondering if that even makes sense or is that still centering that about me, that I have a heaviness here? Would it make something worse to revisit something from the past or would that feel helpful? That's another question there too. To apologize for something, I guess. Is that helpful, an apology? I would be concerned about the apology, right? Like leading with an apology because I don't actually know that it's wanted. And a lot of times, and I talk about this a lot, like we do apologies and we offer them but it's really a request for absolution, right? I'm going to say I'm sorry, and you're going to tell me it's okay, and I'm going to feel better. So it's another way that, in some ways, this white supremacy centering of my discomfort and making me feel better shows up. If you're really concerned about his experience, you could just simply say, you know what, we were having this conversation about race that's, in some ways, not really done in our society, in our community. And I realized I was wondering if I showed up in a way that was hard for you. And if I did, I would love to hear that, right? And that way, if he says, yes, you did, you can connect about that. And that's when you might offer an apology if he wants one. But just leading with the apology means if he wasn't feeling that, he now has to do that labor of helping you feel better about what's going on when he might have been like, I'm just fine. Why are we going here now? Right? That topic of labor has also been interesting because I think it's only been the past maybe even six months or so that I was aware of it because I remember it coming up in an educational setting in which there was a diverse group of people and we started talking about racism. And one of the Black members of the setting started talking about how they didn't want to be in that position of doing the labor of educating a white person. And I've been sitting with it ever since because, again, it wasn't my intention. It's just similar to the harm, not an intention of harm, not an intention of the labor. But I realized I have a lot of ignorance about what that labor is like because I've never had to experience it. So could you talk more about that side of doing the labor to educate somebody or any emotion? I love the the awareness that you have of the labor and the inquiry. And I think one of the important things, just I'd love for Roxy to come and weigh in on this, but even before we go there, one of the things that Roxy and I write about is about the importance of self and compassion as we're moving through this territory. So there's quite a lot of sweetness to kind of catching ourselves no matter what and knowing a little bit about the neuroscience of the way that privilege impacts brains, which is why we use the phrase, you know, the blindfold of privilege. (laughs) It's because 
what it does is whenever we have more than somebody else, whenever we have more power than somebody else or more money or more social position or more social influence, then what happens for our brain is we actually stop seeing the other people's, the people who have less than us, we stop seeing their facial expressions. We stop picking up nuance. And so your question for Roxy a little bit ago was, was there some body language I wasn't picking up on? This is such a great question because that's part of the blindfold of privilege is that we don't pick up on the body language. We don't pick up on the facial expressions. So going in and knowing that and then bringing what Roxy's offering in terms of like, let's in a way, you know, kind of like, let's make it even more uncomfortable. Let's talk about the the meta experience of this conversation and make sure that we've got everybody's consent for what's going on. So I just want to celebrate some of the questions that you're bringing out and the consciousness that's there in them. And then I'll turn this back over to Roxy, if I may. I'm really glad that you're naming this, Sarah, because this is one of the challenges. I think the whole dialogue about race relations in our country, and it's completely understandable, but has become this very binary, you're good or you're bad, right? You got it or you don't got it. And we don't actually hold the spectrum of, like, some of this is actually out of our conscious control, that even with the best of intentions, some of the ways that my brain works are going to filter out what I'm aware of. It's going to filter out what I pay attention to. And so it's not to say that that's an excuse, that because this is the way my brain works, I'm therefore off the hook. But it's also to be able to hold ourselves with a lot of compassion and say, oh my gosh, I did not show up in the way that I wanted to. And that doesn't align with my values. That's hard. And that's invitation for me to try harder, right? To take this extra step of knowing, do I check in with somebody first? Do I question myself before I do the thing that I'm just going to do automatically? And I want to tie that back to the question that you had asked about this group where the person says, I don't want to do the labor of educating you. And I think that's one of those unconscious assumptions that we make. In my mind, of enslavement in this country is this very unconscious idea of who works for whom, right? So if you are Black, you work for white folks. And if I'm white, I don't work for you. And so in exactly this field that you're talking about, when I'm curious If I'm curious as a black person, I go look it up on the internet. I find someone else to ask. I don't go to the white person and say, hey, I'm curious about your experience, because that's really risky on a lot of different ways. But if I'm a white person and I'm curious about a black person's experience, even though there's a million things written on the internet, there's still this automatic assumption, I get to ask you that and you get to answer me. And it's supposed to be okay. Like That's the normal way of things. And we don't even recognize how ingrained belief is that, yeah, you're here to answer my questions when there's so many other strategies that could be available to us. Wow. Thank you for explaining it that way, because it it helps me understand that dynamic. That's, I guess I've had the privilege of not having to understand. I think it was tricky because I would rather learn from an individual because I know each individual is bringing something different to the table. But I think that's where that consent comes into play. Are you interested in teaching me? Could that be a question you ask? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because that's the other thing that I hear white folks say, well, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know who to ask. I don't know who to talk to. I'm like, ask. There are people like me who say, I'm here. I'm willing to answer your questions. This is my life's work. And there are other people who are saying, 
I just want to like have a friend. I want to talk to you about crocheting. I don't want everything to be about my satisfying your curiosity about race. So it's really about the consent. Yeah. And I think Consent is such an important thing that unfortunately has been, in my view, centered around things like sexuality and romantic relationships. We think about asking for consent, but I don't think we're taught or encouraged to ask for consent in other elements of life that can be uncomfortable. Or maybe we don't have a lot of clarity as a society about boundaries and triggers and getting into that practice of asking someone versus assuming that they're okay with it. Because not everybody's going to even be comfortable expressing that they're not okay with it. I really like beginning to think about consent, like about like, again, kind of moving away from the idea of harm more to the idea of interest. Like, I love this. Are you interested in teaching me? (laughs) Such a great question. And to begin to notice the different kinds of speech, because there's a kind of speech that we use for just talking about crocheting, and there's a kind of speech that we use to begin to investigate questions of, of race or of other kinds of privilege, of wealth, questions of mobility, questions of class. I mean, one of the things we hear about in the United States, sometimes even less than race, is questions about class. And do we get to talk about these things? And is the other person interested in talking about these things? It's such a, it's more fun to wonder about interest than it is to wonder about harm. That lands for both of you, but I'm real interested. I want to tweak that a little bit, though, because I think the question of harm can't be separated from that question of interest, because I might be interested in having some great conversations with someone about race, but walking through the world in this body, I never know where it's safe to do that, right? So if I'm in the workplace, and this comes up a lot, people are in the workplace, something has happened out in the world, and all of a sudden the entire job wants to talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter and what kind of harm has happened here in the workplace. Well, as a Black person in this workplace, I've been trying to tell you all about harm. And what's happened when me and other people talk about it is I watch my friends get pushed out. I watch people get turned down from certain positions. So the interest might be there, but the consequence, the cost of doing that is huge. And that's the other piece I want people to hold when they say, well, I just want to talk to you about it. Don't you want to make things better? Well, there's very little risk for the white person talking about it. There's that risk of maybe I won't belong, maybe I will be judged, but that's a risk that I'm also holding all the time. But the risks in terms of, are you going to lose your job? Are you going to be targeted? Like all of these risks are things that we are not sharing equally. And so I don't want people to think that folks aren't interested in having these conversations, but I can't always separate out interests from And what harm, what danger are you asking me to step into to have the conversation with you, especially when I don't know you? Yeah, I love this, the consequences, being able to take that into account. I do too. And that really resonates with me this week, actually, because I've been reading this book called Inclusion on Purpose, and it's specifically about inclusion in the workplace. And one of the elements of the book I've read thus far that really sat, I've been sitting with, it really stood out to me, was around that risk that you just mentioned, Roxy, because I did not realize statistically the risk factors. And the author pointed out that people in a place of privilege, especially white people in the workplace, they can 
advocate for anti-racism in the workplace by speaking out when they see racism happening because they don't face as high of a risk as a person of color who might point out racist actions or ask for anti-racist accommodations or changes, shifts in the environment. And that felt like a really important piece of information because I've been wondering where my place is in the anti-racist space and diversity, equity, inclusion that I'm very passionate about. But sometimes I wonder who am I as a white person to be speaking on this? And I'd love to hear your individual answers as well as your response to this idea that maybe my place is to speak on things because I don't have as much risk or consequence. Would you agree with that? Well, I want to reframe it a little bit. And I actually love this question at first. So I just want to say a little bit more about it because, and it ties into this idea that we're always talking about harm. But I also think like, especially in a workplace setting, risk shows up in a lot of different ways. So if I start to talk about racism in the workplace, there might be all of these consequences that we talked about. What could also happen, another consequence that could look like a good thing is, is people are like, oh, great, you get to be the person to work on this. This is now the Black group's bailiwick, right? And all of a sudden, I have my full job to do, and I'm now tasked with holding the DEI initiatives for the whole company with no reduction in my workload. And then when I start to drop something because I can't do everything, I'm targeted. I'm not a good person. I'm not a good worker. I'm inefficient, whatever. And so there are a lot of, lots of subtle risks. And so when you say something like, is there a role for me to talk about this, to speak up about this, to take action? Absolutely. But that role needs to be guided. It's not about saying, I see something, I'm going to jump in right away and fix it. It's about saying, hey, like if we were in the same workplace, hey, Roxy, I just noticed something. And I want to check in with you around how I could support you in addressing this, right? So it's not like sometimes I don't want, I've shared this example in the past, being in a group, I was in a class and I had a professor who was incredibly sexist, right? Like the kind of really, oh, always kind of standing over a woman, looking down their shirt, making all of these inappropriate jokes, really yucky. And he'd been at the school for a really long time. A lot of the women in the class were like, okay, you know what? I've got to take this class to graduate. And we know that he targets you if you speak up about it. So our stance was, A, try not to take that class with that person. And if you're in it, just try to get through it. And one of the men in the class saw what was happening and was like, hey, I really don't like what's happening. You need to stop. This isn't okay. And the professor turns and is like, hey, woman, is that okay with you? You're fine with what I'm doing, aren't you? Well, now this woman has to say either, yeah, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Or no, I actually don't like it. And then have all of these consequences. If that male student had checked in with that woman and say, I'm noticing what's happening, what would be supportive? She might have said something like, don't say anything to him because he targets us and I don't want to be put on the spot, but maybe you can find a way to change the subject, right? Like we can actually tell you what would be supportive rather than having people jump in with those blindfolds on and taking a strategy that's not going to work for us. That reminds me a bit, I think the terminology is like the white savior. And I don't know if it's considered the white savior, but also examples of people who have gone into other countries and cultures and tried to help and assuming that they wanted a certain t 
type of help. I think often like by giving them access to food and water in a way that they might have had access, but it actually ends up making things worse because that's not what they needed. That's not what they wanted. That's not the right resources or that's not the right form of resources. So it actually shifts the entire dynamic around in a negative way, maybe creating more harm. Would you say, does that resonate as something similar? And does that fall into this white savior example? Absolutely. Well, I'll go just really quickly and then bring Roxy's willing to come back in on this because we've got any kind of privilege with that blindfold of privilege then creates the savior complex. It creates that tendency. So here Roxy's telling the story about the male savior, and then we've got the white savior, and then we've got the person with wealth savior. I mean, whatever it is that we've got, this is just such a wonderful thing to name as a part of this complex of the blindfold that we carry. Because the weight of it for the brain is, like, the progression is blindness, and then discovery, and then horror, And then there's like a kind of, we get caught in an avalanche that's a result of the discovery of what we've been blind to all along. And this actually circles us back towards what are microaggressions, because more than anything else, microaggressions are the obliteration of the other person as an individual who has their own experience and their own unique way of being in the world doesn't have anything to do with whatever groups they belong to. So we're kind of coming around full circle, and I'm so glad we are because I really love that when we get to get Roxy to talk about microaggressions. <laughs> but you might be have some other stuff to say, Roxy, from what we were talking about before we go here. Yeah. There was something I wanted to say about the white savior, or and I'll just use the white saviors. There's something about how one of the ways that blindfold works is that I think that the strategies that work for me are going to work for you. And so we were talking earlier about like the fact that we have different levels of risk, different levels of consequence. So sometimes I hear people say, well, why don't you speak up and say something? Or so I'm going to speak up and say something because they're not aware that the cost of speaking up is different for you than it is for me. That if you speak up about racism, everyone's going to be like, oh, what a wonderful, enlightened person. If I speak up about racism, it'll be like, oh, she's pulling the race card again, right? And so even just doing the same action might land differently for different people. And if we're not aware of that, and we're only using our lens to imagine what's possible and what the outcome will be if we take these steps, we're likely missing the other person. So it goes back, we keep talking about looping back, going back to consent, checking in with the person, what actually serves you now, and then letting them help us know where to go. Thank you for that clarity. As you were speaking, I was thinking about how do you know when you're being truly inclusive versus performative? How do you know when you're being inclusive versus looking for tokenism, bringing this person into this space just to, I guess that's part of being performative, but I'm bringing this person in so I can look as if, or I can pretend as if, or, or maybe I just have a false belief that I'm being inclusive, but really I'm just using this person for my own gain. How do you navigate that and check in with yourself? Because I wonder that a lot about myself with the podcast, even like, I want to ensure that my guests don't feel like I'm bringing them on just because of their identity. I want them to feel like they're being brought on as a full person, but that feels tough because I have my own biases. And like, how do I check in with my own agenda, essentially? 
there are a couple of things I want to say, and I love that this might get uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable to say. Absolutely, you're bringing me on because I'm a Black person. You are bringing me on because of my identity. And that's okay. It's absolutely okay to say, I want to bring in a different experience and let that help educate my listeners. So it's not necessarily bad that you want to do that. And I always want us to move away from this kind of like, I can't do anything if I say it's about your identity because I'm being X, Y, or Z. Of course, you're going to do that. This is one of the explicit choices I'm asking people to make, right? So that's the first piece I wanted to say. But then the other question is, I ask myself in those moments, how would I feel if this person said no, right? So whatever it is that I'm trying to do, how do I feel if you say no? No, thanks. Don't want that. And if my response is like, I'm hurt, I'm upset. No, you have to do it. What's wrong with you? Don't you see what I'm trying to do for you? I'm doing it for me. I'm not doing it for you. But if I offer you something and you say no, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. So glad that you're letting me know what works for you. Then I know that I'm not being performative, that I'm truly centering your needs. So that's one of the first places I'll start. Imagine the person gives you a hard note, whatever it is that you're offering them. And are you truly okay with that? Another thing that came up, <laughs> I keep I have a lot of questions and I'm so grateful that you are both here and willing to answer them. And you said earlier that you're willing to do the labor of education, I believe was your words, Roxy. And I feel like I have so much to learn from you. Another scenario that reminded me kind of based on your stories too, I love that you're bringing in your personal stories because they're helpful in helping me understand, but also remind me of experiences I've had that work hard. And part of my learning experience was opening my eyes just in the last few years. This is recent. Again, I had that blindfolded privilege, still do, I'm sure in many ways I'm not even aware of yet, but really started to take it off and peek through it the last few years. And I was a bit shocked to discover that great majority of my friends were white. Great majority of people that I worked with were white. I did not have diversity in many ways. It wasn't just about race, ethnicity. It was gender, sexuality, religion. I mean, on and on. It was just like, oh, wow, I've been in a bubble of a specific type of people, mainly people that looked like me or lived like me, thought like me. And then I started to notice it in other environments, such as projects I was working on. There was this one project that was based around interviewing people. And the person who hired me was a white man and their team members were both white. And every single guest that they had as part of this interview series was white. And I asked them if we could have more diversity in the type of guests. But I don't know if I asked, I don't want to say the right way, but I clearly my ask either wasn't heard or perhaps it wasn't loud enough because they took no action after my ask to create more diversity. And I felt very uncomfortable because I don't want to be part of a space that doesn't have diversity. So I'm curious, how can I ask for that? Is it my place to ask for that too? This takes us back towards what Roxy was talking about with consequences in some ways. Like, do you have the personal power or do you lose something? When you are dogging for your needs, when you're going, coming back around and saying, hey, here was this request that I made. I didn't hear anything about it. What's up with that? Do you get to do that? Do you have the power in that situation? Or do you get banned from this podcast that might be really important to you? So that's part of what we want to know. And then we want to know, like, what does your integrity want? 
How does your integrity want you to speak up? Is it pushing you toward that kind of inquiry and connection? I mean, it can be a very genuine curiosity and it can bring really interesting conversations. As the voice of a woman speaking to men, sometimes that's where it gets lost. It doesn't even get lost in our whiteness. It gets lost in our gender. And so we're always dealing with many different forms of privilege and lack of privilege, whoever we are. Yeah. Roxy, it looks like you might be about to speak. Yeah. So one of the things that came to mind as I heard this question, right, should you intervene in this moment with the podcast, is really thinking about what is your purpose? What is my intention in this moment? Is my intention to get more diverse folks on this podcast? Do I want to shift this person, like the person who's in charge of the podcast? Is my goal to shift what he's doing long term so that there can be a meaningful shift about what's happening? Depending on what I want, I approach it in a very different way. If I'm wanting that long-term shift, so it's not just about I can yell and scream and do things and essentially shame and guilt him into getting more folks on the podcast, but nothing has shifted inside of him. So that's not that effective. I'm not going to be there forever. I want there to be true inclusion. So I might go back to him and wonder, well, first I would wonder for myself, why would he not do this? If he heard my requests, what possible reasons could he have for not bringing people on the podcast? And this goes back to what we were saying before, that sometimes we might have the desire. It's like, yes, I want to do this, but is he afraid? Is he thinking that if I get folks on this podcast, I'm not going to know what to say to them or I'm going to make myself look stupid? And it might be then saying to him, I'd love to have us get some more folks representing different identities on this podcast. And I'd like to brainstorm with you to think about who that might be and what the questions might be so that we'd be really prepared for what comes up, right? So really thinking about what are some of the steps I need to take to get him along so that he's ready to do this. And a lot of times we make our request, we drop it, and we think, if you're not doing it, it's because there's resistance. You don't want to do this. You haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. No, I actually want to do this. I just don't know how, and I'm scared, and I don't know how to say that, because it's not okay to say that. That's one of the thoughts of what's coming up as I heard you. I hadn't looked at it that way, and that's an interesting perspective, because I think I just jumped to, he either didn't hear me, and I'm afraid to speak up again, uh, or he did hear me, and it went ignored, but I didn't consider it from, maybe he just doesn't know how to do it, because he hasn't yet, or maybe it's not important to him, and he doesn't know how to say that. And I've noticed since I've been working in the health and wellness space for quite a long time, in which this project was part of as well, I noticed that it's dominated by white voices. And there have been some people coming to point out there's a lot of privilege in the health and wellness space. And I don't know if that's something either of you can speak on, but that was part of what I learned in the last few years. Before, I definitely would want Sarah to speak on that, but I want to just go back to the, and maybe he didn't want to do this at all, like it's not important to him. And I think that's also important, that if you actually take the time to say, hey, I made this request, and I'm not sure if you didn't hear it or if it's something that we might need to like troubleshoot to figure out how to do it or if it's just not something you're interested in, right? We often don't even ask that because we don't want to hear, I don't want this. That's your thing, right? But I want to actually get that information because if I know that you're not interested and this is important to me, I now have the information that lets me know maybe it's time for me to look for another job, right? Something where it's more aligned with my values. And I won't know which of these options it is unless I check in and have the conversation. 
And that's part of what the book is about, like really thinking about what are some of the reasons, the needs that are driving all of these different conversations we might have? What information do I need in order to know how I want to move through the world? Yes, I would love to hear your answer, Sarah, to that point and or the the wellness point. And I just want to thank you, Roxy, because I have to also check in with myself. Am I afraid of the answer? And there was a little bit of fear of standing up for my beliefs to a white man, because as Sarah points out, there are certainly power dynamics in a patriarchal society that we're in. But there's also a fear that it might reveal information that maybe I'm not, or I wasn't at that point, ready to hear or willing to hear. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think it's so good to name the whiteness of wellness spaces and to mourn it and to move toward opening and invitation and co-creation and as much as possible to use whatever we've got to begin to make those inquiries about what do people want? How do they want to participate? What interests them? How do they want to contribute? How are voices being silenced? How can each of us use whatever we've got in accordance with our own desires and intentions and integrities to make the world more juicy, more interesting, more richer, more just got whiteness going on? It's kind of boring. (laughs) Let's have something different happen. But I noticed that we might be getting a little bit shorter on time. And I just really have a deep desire to get Roxy to speak just a little bit about microaggressions. Cause yeah, I was actually thinking about microaggressions when you were talking about the wellness space, right? Because that's part of one of the reasons it's so hard sometimes when we enter these spaces. I'm a large black woman. And so when I've entered some of these wellness spaces, I can sometimes receive like surprise because I'm there and I'm the only black person. And I'm there because I want to work out. I want to, you know, do something that's really supporting whatever goal brought me there. And all of a sudden, everybody who's there, like will come to me and say, I'm so glad you're here. Can you tell us how we can get more people like you in the space? Right. That's your agenda. That's not mine. And then all of a sudden, that's not a space I want to be in anymore because I don't trust that I can really focus on what my needs are. Or I enter these spaces and I'm really knowledgeable about a lot of things. I'm a psychologist. For instance, I used to work in a sleep clinic. I used to do work in a primary care clinic, right? So I know a lot about helping people with behavioral change. If I go to my doctor, and not my doctor, I have a lovely doctor now, I just want to say that I love my doctor, but I've gone to way too many medical appointments when the minute I walk into the room, no matter what I say, I get, oh, if only you lost weight, everything would be fine. And I'm kind of thinking, you know what? A, I know how to lose weight. I know like all the steps, the behavioral steps that one is supposed to take. And I'm also really clear that this is not about my weight. I tore my meniscus and I had knee pain for a really long time because I was um, training for a triathlon. And every doctor I went to kept saying, oh, you just have to lose weight. You just can't run. You just can't run. And I finally went to a doctor at Stanford who actually worked with the Stanford football team. And he said, there are a lot of football players who weigh a lot more than you do. This is not about your weight. We need to figure out what's going on. And it turned out I had this torn meniscus that no one was paying attention to. And for me, that's an example of the kind of microaggression and validation of people's experiences that it makes it hard for me to decide I'm going to go to the doctor because how many times am I going to have to tell you and convince you that what I'm talking about is not 
attributable to the cause that you're attributing about, attributing it to, that it's really something else. There's something wrong. And it's exhausting. And so for me, this is where like educating professionals about microaggressions, about unconscious bias, about all the research that talks about the different kind of decision makings. People die because they don't get offered important heart medication that's the standard of care simply because they're Black. If we don't know about that, we can't take the steps to say, have I gone through my checklist before I jump to this conclusion? I just go there. Thank you for bringing that into the conversation. And it's a really helpful example of the microaggression. And Sarah, thank you for advocating for addressing that before we wrap up today. Yeah, I want to say about microaggressions that the more we learn about them, the more we become empowered, again, to come back to our very first thing, to do no harm. Because (laughs) even though we know we're walking through the world and we're doing harm, we can do everything we can to mitigate that harm. And a part of mitigating that harm is learning about microaggressions. Roxy's brought this example of medical microaggressions, where people actually don't receive the medication that they need in order to survive, which is, of course, fatal. But there's also the cost on bodies that are receiving microaggressions of millions of paper cuts that we have very clear research leads to heart disease, leads to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that leads to situations where people get more cancer. I mean, even without the medical microaggressions, if we're not looking at microaggressions and learning about them and learning how to just be with people and to let go of our ideas and learn what ideas are about people based on the way they look and let go of them and just starting to really move into relating person to person, taking the risk, like we've been saying, knowing that we're going to do harm, having the inquiry, asking consent, being interested in another person. What do they need? How can we serve? If we don't come with this attitude, we're actually inflicting paper cut after paper cut on people that we love and we don't want to have paper cuts. You know, I mean, The blind, working with the blindfold is just so important. Yeah. One of the things that just came up was that old childhood saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, actually, words kill you, right? And it's like really recognizing that. Another thing I wanted to loop back, I think, to a question that you'd asked with me at the very beginning around, is it a microaggression? Like if I don't have an intention, like how do I even recognize that I'm doing a microaggression? And I think that's a great place to look at, because one of the things I always want people to understand about microaggressions is that it's not about your intention. And I know I'm not the first person to say this, I will not be the last person, but it's really about how it impacts the receiver of the microaggression, the person who's who you said or did something to. And the way that I help people explain this is that when I experience a microaggression, I think of a pyramid and just the top of the pyramid is what you said or did to me. That's where like maybe 10% of the pain is coming from the fact that you said or did something to me. But another chunk of my pain is that when you said or did this thing, it brought up a lot of memories, a lot of history that I have and a lot of the stories I developed in relation to this piece. So if I go back to some educational microaggressions, which seems very appropriate given the Supreme Court's decision yesterday... It's one of the microaggressions that I experienced that I talk about in the book was having this professor who said, I'm going to give you an F on this paper because you didn't write it. It's too good. Black people don't write like this, right? And this is like a microaggression that's mind-boggling. It's huge. It's big. But the words that he said were painful, had a lot of impact. 
But where it also fell was the many, many, many times when professors didn't see me, when teachers didn't see me, when they told me, you shouldn't take this class because you're not good enough. And it started to feed my stories that maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe there's something about me that's problematic. So anybody else who says anything that I might interpret, like you're so articulate, as doubting my intelligence is stimulating all of that pain. And it's also stimulating pain at this, what I call the systemic level, that I'm also aware of, this is not just about me. This is a pain that's connected to, and this is the experience of countless people who look like me, right? Countless Black students walking into a classroom who are pushed into tracks, like, you know, the vocational track versus the scientific track, who are not given credit for their work, who are accused of plagiarism. Great cartoon in The New Yorker recently by a young Cal student who has won awards for his art. And the professor said, you didn't draw this art. You couldn't use language like this, right? It's still happening. And so my pain, if you make a microaggression, it might give you permission to say, wow, I stimulated pain in you. And I want to take responsibility for that. And I also want to recognize that part of why this is so painful is that it ties into how often this happens to you and how often it happens to people who look like you, that this is larger than me. And if I can hold that, then I find a place where even if I'm beating myself up that I did this thing and I want to intervene so that this doesn't keep happening to other people. I want to intervene at that systemic level. I want to find ways to speak up and tell professors like that is not okay. This is, of course, I've had conversations with this person about this book. So whatever it is, I find the path to action. That's not just that I'm the only reason you're feeling pain, that this is so huge. You both have said so many profound things that have helped me and hopefully really opened up the minds, the hearts, and given action steps for the listener as well. And before we wrap up, I'd love to know, how did you two come into each other's lives and why did you decide to write a book together? It's just one book so far, or have you done multiple books together? There are two books. Roxy wrote How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, and together we wrote the handbook, The Anti-Racist Heart, which is about neuroscience and self-compassion and lots of exercises to work on exactly the kind of stuff that Roxy and I have been talking about. And the story of the books is really kind of magical because I was like, Roxy, I want to write a book with you. And Roxy's like, well, I want to write a book with you, but I really want to have my own book. And I said, well, let's go shop this around and see if we can get some publishers to take it. And we had a couple of publishers turn us down. And then we ran into this publisher who said, well, we'll take it if you can prove that you can sell it. And then Roxy did this fabulous fundraiser, this crowdsourcing Kickstarter, and we reached out to our communities and we got pre-purchase of how many books did we get pre-purchased, Roxy? It was like $30,000 worth of pre-purchases. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was 500 books, but it was very wonderful. And the publisher then said, yes, okay. And went the two book deal, which is Roxy's book and, uh, and our joint book. And I want to add to that story because I think there's another like subtle piece in there that I sometimes want to lift up that for me, this partnership was an example of how to have uncomfortable conversations because it took me a while to say, Sarah, I don't want to write just one book with you because if I do, you're a white woman and you're published already and everyone will say, oh, this is Sarah's stuff, right? I won't have my own voice. And again, my contributions in some ways will be erased. And so I need to write my own book with my own content because that's the only way I trusted that I would be seen. And a lot of folks would have gotten defensive, but Sarah was like, that makes sense. You know, let's make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
And what a beautiful example of the partnership. Yeah. Roxy and I got to meet by both being nonviolent communication trainers and, and loving each other's work, I think. Well, I'm in awe of the two of you as individuals and as collaborators and how you not lean on each other, but you lift each other up and you turn to each other to answer things from different perspectives, from the joint perspectives that you share. And you've just done so much good in my life to teach me how to ask different questions and check in. We talked about consent the blindfold, which is just such a powerful metaphor and really learning how to mitigate harm, to make inquiries. And I think also the partnership that the two of you have together is a beautiful example of how we can work together to have an influence, to make an impact on change and address some of these really hard, uncomfortable things that we're dealing with. So I appreciate the grace in which you have taken here with me today, but also in all of the work that you do. It's just incredibly important. And thank you for answering my questions too. I'm going to leave this conversation with a lot more awareness and many more tools. And for that, I'm just deeply grateful. And for the listener who's grateful too, I will link to both Roxy and Sarah for the work they've done on their own and the work that they've done together. You can find that in two places. The easiest place to start is right here on your podcast player. In the description, there are links right there. So you don't have to go to any website beyond the... Well, that's your starting point to go to another website, I suppose. But if you would like to read this version of the episode, it is in a blog post format that contains more resources, lots of links, a great thing for you to share if this resonates and you think of other people that you would like to pass this along to. And that is in the show notes section of wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. When you go to this episode on that website, you'll find the blog post with imagery. Uh, When I get the YouTube version of this up, that'll be embedded there. And then when you scroll to the bottom, every single resource we've mentioned today is there for your ease. Thank you, Sarah and Roxy. Again, it has just been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. (laughs) And thank you, Whitney. Thank you. And thank you, Roxy. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.